creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can grab a seat. So as I said, we're at the end of this creed series. We have this carefully crafted statement of faith, which was written in the absolutely earliest days of Christianity and was used in particular for baptism into the church family. It's also been used as a guide for the Christian life, and it acted as a safeguard against heresy, which was basically people coming in saying different things that weren't quite right, wrong beliefs, it was like this moment where we can say, this is our faith consolidated. And if these things don't measure up to that, it's not right. It has been spoken by millions and millions and millions of Christians worldwide since the beginnings of our faith. And the church mothers and fathers have packed some absolutely fundamentals of our faith into the final 14 words. This is what they wanted ringing in our ears as we finish reading the statement of faith. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And as we unpack those a bit this morning, I want us to a hold of, if you go away with two things, this will be it. So at this point, if you need to switch off and go to sleep and you've not had enough, I can let you off. God calls us to be a community of grace. That's what the forgiveness of sins. And then to live as resurrection people, when we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I'm just going to pray as we delve in. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are all over this service already. We thank you um, that you have been speaking to us. And we pray in this moment as we look at these fundamentals of our faith that you would continue to speak to each of us about who you are and who you are calling us to be. We want to really be open to whatever you have to say to each of us this morning. We give you free reign. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first part. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We can probably have their slide off now, if that's all right, Ben. Um, absolutely fascinating background to this line of the creed. 303. The Emperor Diocletian absolutely brutally persecuted Christians. You had a choice. If you were found out as a Christian, Christians were in hiding like some of the persecuted church in some places. You had a choice. You either said, yes, I believe in this. Your books were burnt. Your church is destroyed. You were imprisoned and often you were killed for your faith quite brutally. And the way they kind of suggested, there was two, two options if you were found to be Christian. That happened to you or you publicly renounced your baptism, which was these things that were said in the creed. And that you were encouraged then to, well, you were forced to sacrifice the Roman gods as a way of saying, yeah, I don't believe that stuff. I am totally all in for believing in the Roman gods. And so many people did actually do this because, frankly, if we're honest, the thought of 
us and our loved ones dying and our whole way of life being completely ruined is a scary prospect, including lots of church leaders. And then the passage of time, Christianity becomes tolerated, it even becomes celebrated under latent Roman leadership. And then there was this moment of dilemma for the church. There was a time of intense soul-searching as these Christians who had renounced their faith in fear came back to the church and said, I'm really sorry. I really want to be part of this community. I really do believe in all of these things that we have talked about, particularly in the creed. Um, and in particular, um, the clergy, the church leaders that came back, and there was this, this moment of like, oh, how can we accept these people who have so openly betrayed the faith that the rest of us have fought very hard to continue to live under? And the church came to the conclusion under God that failures, even public failures, cannot exclude us from the grace of God when we turn away from that. That the church can never be judgmental or elitist. And 1 John 18, if you remember one verse from this section, it is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says it very clearly in the Bible. And that was what they pinned this on. Because forgiveness is totally key to our faith. And interestingly, people would come to Jesus for all sorts of different things when he walked this earth. They would come to him because they were interested. They would come because they wanted to be close to him. They would come because they wanted to question him. They would come because they wanted to see what was going on. A lot of time, people came to him for healing and teaching. But often the first thing that Jesus said to them, particularly when he was healing people, was, your sins are forgiven. They didn't come asking. Nobody came to him saying, Jesus, will you forgive my sins? They just came to him, and that was the first thing often that he would say to them, your sins are forgiven. And this was what sent shockwaves through the religious community at the time, because they were thinking, well, the only person who can forgive sins is God. And this was the way that Jesus almost outed himself as God, because he forgave sins. But Jesus knew that we need forgiveness. That's why he lived that's why he died. That's why he was brought to, death, brought to life again for each of us, as we say in the creed. And the power of sin is broken when we trust in his death for us. But it's not only that do we personally need forgiveness. There is another flip side to this too, is that each of us needs to learn to forgive others. And this for me is what it looks like to be a community of grace, where we can be forgiven and where we choose and we learn to forgive. And I want to use the word choosing and learning because I think if we're honest, it's fairly countercultural. I think sometimes we might forgive people who we quite like, who are close to us, who haven't done something too terrible, but often there's much more of a like, well, you know, cancel culture, stay out of my life, I don't really need to hang out with you. And, and even as we, read the Lord's, we said the Lord's Prayer together, we'll see this, this link, this uncomfortable link, let's be honest, when we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And when the disciples, I love some of their questions, some of them are ridiculous, some of them are brilliant. This one for me is like, they came to him and they said to him, so Jesus, this forgiveness thing, how many times should we do it? Well, you know, 
seven times maybe. And the thing is, we read this stuff and we kind of, it all feels a bit theoretical. We're reading it in the Bible, yes, seven times. You think, wow, that's not very holy, is it? Realistically, this week for me, I've had something going on in my extended family where I've had to forgive someone from something. And it was incredibly painful. We're for- I'm forgiven. It's all fine. We're sorted out now. That person hadn't done that thing to me before. If they did the same thing next week, and 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 then I'm thinking, well, seven times, that's quite a lot. After a while, I think I'd be like, well, you know what? I just can't, I can't deal with you. But Jesus turned around and he said, no, 77 times. And seven was seen as the like, complete number. And he uses the word 77, not because he wants us to count 77, but because he's saying unlimited. That's the number of times that we should forgive people. And we know that actually that is impossible. We cannot do that as humans. We can only do that with the Holy Spirit. And I do want to make a side note as well. For those of us that are working through trauma, forgiveness is not the same as acceptance. Forgiveness can be a long journey to recovery, and it may need a lot of support, and it may need boundaries. But we cannot get away from the fact that Jesus took the worst rejection and abuse so he could be with us in ours. He was abandoned by his friends. He was falsely accused. He was wrongly tortured and he was put to death. But some of his last words that are recorded for us, those uncomfortable words, but those beautiful words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We are called to imitate Jesus. And, but Jesus knew that we would really struggle with this. So he actually... Sorry, I've lost my place slightly. Here we are. He, struggled, he knew that we'd struggle to forgive um, people. He knew that we would struggle to understand forgiveness and his outrageous grace. So what he did when he was with people, he told them stories. We refer to them as parables. Essentially, it's just an illustration of saying, this is how forgiveness looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what he would often start off with. And there's been quite a few that I've been looking through them this week. And the one that I've plumped on is the one that, let's be honest, a lot of us already know. The prodigal son. And for anybody that doesn't know the story, for all of us who need a bit of a recap, it is an outrageous story of forgiveness, of grace. We have a father who has two sons. And the youngest son says to him, Dad, I want the money that's going to get come to me when you've died, which is essentially a way of saying, particularly in those times, I view you as dead. He t- the father gives the son the money because he wants to give him choice. And um, he, the son goes away and he squanders his money on what the Bible refers to as world living. And I think in some translations that is mostly parties, prostitutes, all sorts of stuff that was regarded as deeply, however uncomfortable we might feel with those things, it felt much more uncomfortable in the times when that, was, that story was told. And then the, the younger son has this moment where he's spent all his money, he's, um, his job is feeding pigs, pigs were seen as incredibly dirty animals, a Jewish person wouldn't even have touched a pig, definitely not fed them, wouldn't eat them. He's feeding a pig, it's, it's this kind of moment of God saying he was in his lowest moment, and he was eating the pig's food because he was so hungry. And he has this moment where he's like, oh, you know what, my dad's a good guy. He has servants that are serving him that are way better off than I am. Maybe, just maybe, if I repent to my father, he will allow me to be a servant and I would be in a better place that I'm going to be forever, which is essentially um, eating pig food. So he makes his journey home and he's repeating this kind of like 
um, um, Dad, please forgive me. I know I've really messed up. I just want to be your servant. And even before then, his father, who has been the, the Jewish custom of those days, is if your son does something that stupid, you would say outwardly to the whole of the community, my son is dead to me. And he would have just concentrated on his older son. He would just say, my son, I don't have anything to do with him. Instead, the father, every day, is searching the horizon. He's looking out for his son. His son starts to trudge towards him and he thinks, is that my son? And the father runs to him, which is a deeply sort of, it would have been so embarrassing for him to do that. And yet, so the son comes to him and he starts repeating this, Dad, I'm so sorry, I've totally messed up. Please can I be your servant? And his dad stops him halfway. And he gathers him in his arms and he hugs him and he takes off his robe and he gives it to him and he puts on his ring on him and he puts his sandals on him, all of which are to say, I completely reinstate you as if none of that had ever happened, because I love you so much. And, and Jesus dedicates two-thirds of the story to telling this beautiful thing about the father who forgives the son, but he then dedicates a third of the story to talking about the older son, who is so angry with his brother, understandably so, that he cannot even, he can't welcome his brother home, he can't even go into the party, because he's just like, look so his father comes out to him and says to his other son, he says, please come, come and join us. And the older son goes, I can't. He has completely shamed us as a family. He has spent all your living. I cannot even come into the party to celebrate him. And this is part of the challenge that Jesus is saying to us when we struggle to forgive other people. He's saying, my grace and my forgiveness are, are so beyond what you think. They're so beyond the son thinking that he could be the servant in the family. He is completely reinstated and we see it again in Luke 23, um, the two criminals either side of Jesus on the cross. One of them decides to, um, as Jesus is dying, continue, this, this baffles me, but heckle him along with all the other people who are heckling Jesus and mocking him. And the one on the other side just says to Jesus these very few words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And while that might seem like a kind of grasping at straws, when you say to someone, it was a recognition of Jesus' kingship. It was a recognition of who Jesus was, and it was a recognition that he needed him to be his king. And Jesus doesn't turn around to him and go, well, it's a little bit late now. You haven't kind of, you know, you haven't actually gone and said sorry to all these other people that, you know, you might have killed or you might have done some terrible things to. He just straight away says to him, at that moment when the, the, the other criminal turns to Jesus, he says to him, um, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're both going to die. You are going to be with me. Um, and, it's, um, and that's the kind of, this is the picture. And this is the reality of God's forgiveness. But it's very, very hard for us um, to, to see ourselves forgiven, but also to forgive us around us today. We see it in ourselves. We see it even in the church. This is one of the saddest conversations I have with people. When I sort of talk about people, I say, I'm, I work for a church, I'm a priest, all this sort of thing. And a lot of people do say to me, ah, I don't come to church because I don't feel good enough or I'm worried I'm going to be judged. And we all know within church that we are all sinners, but we do need to do some serious rebranding. That is the challenge of the church today, and we can only do that with our lives, because this is what the church should be known for. Jesus actually said right before he died, he says, this is how you, people will know that you're my followers, in how you love each other. Because the church throughout history, it is at its most attractive, not when it's full of shiny, happy people, but when it's known as a community, a family of people who love each other well, this is deeply attractional 
to a world in need where cancel culture and boundaries and stepping away and kind of like looking down on people who have messed up is much more, if we're honest, the reality in the world, but also in our own hearts often. And this is one of the challenges that I find um, faces us in the chaplaincy team where I work um, a day a week in Pensonville Prison. I prayed this prayer of 1 John 18, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, with um, a man in the mental health wing who was also, when he wasn't John, but that's what I'm going to call him. (laughs) But he was questioning if God could forgive him, because he was really sorry for the robberies he carried out when he was addicted to heroin to feed his drug habit. And during his time, in multiple times, if we're honest, in prison, he has had lots of time for self-reflection. And they really wanted to change. But we all know it's rarely a straightforward journey back to normal life when you've had that kind of, the, the sort of chaos that he grew up in and the addictions that he's had. But when prisoners repent, they want to turn from their previous mistakes like the guy on the cross. They want to live a life following Jesus. They especially need church a community of grace to love and welcome them. And we're a family with them, despite their previous mistakes, their background or their outward appearance. And so I said to John, when he finishes his sentence soon, as well as really the most important, he gets the support he needs to stay off drugs in rehab. But also as he moves back to Tottenham, I said, get involved in a church. Um, You know, there will be people who will welcome you. And I pray that he will indeed stay out of prison with the right support. And despite the fact he's had multiple sentences, he has mental health issues, and he looks pretty scruffy, if I'm honest, because he's been abusing his body for a long time as an addict, that he will change church family that will help him on the road to recovery. And that if he was to walk into our church, sorry, that he would be as welcome as anyone else. I'm not crying because I don't think that's the case. It's more just that it's a hard thing to see. Um, and it's a hard thing to do to love people well in that place. Um, yeah, so anyway, that was the first bit. Forgiveness of sins. Sorry, slightly heavy ending. <laughs> this one's much happier. <laughs> I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And for me, this is a call to be a resurrection people. Because um, Jesus' resurrection, excuse me, is totally key to our faith. But the Bible goes a step further than that and says that if we trust in him, we too will be raised with him. And how does resurrection happen? This for me was like, the Bible teaches about it all the time. This is resurrection of the body. You know, Jesus comes again, all this sort of stuff. Actually, the mechanics, nobody really knows. Even Paul, who produced the majority of the teaching in the New Testament, calls it a mystery, which is incredibly helpful. But the Peter teaching that he did do, which I found was most helpful in terms of understanding it, was 1 Corinthians 15. He refers to our body as the seed and our resurrection body as the tree. So we have the same identity, we have a difference in appearance, but we are still recognisable as ourselves. The tree is the fulfilment of the seed's potential. And he finishes off this passage with this beautiful line where he says, Where, O death is your victory. Where, O death, is your sting? And the belief in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, these lines talk about Christ's victory over the most difficult things that we face in life. Mourning, crying, pain, injustice, and in particular, death. 
And we read it the same thing as we read in Revelation 21, the end of the book of Revelation. And when, um, and when John is writing about his, what Jesus taught him about the end time, the resurrection of the body, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And so interestingly as well, you've got this end of the creed um, where, sorry, um, the end of the creed where these are the words that are ringing in our ears, forgiveness of sins, resurrection, life and everlasting life. And we have the same thing ringing in our ears at the end of Revelation 21, what I've just read. And these words in the creed were born out of this real persecution of the early church. And but we see something of that today. But actually, um, on the surface, if we're honest, in the West, we're not thinking about that as often, perhaps, as we might or we should. Sometimes life feels a little bit comfortable. I think sometimes we have that moment of, like, Jesus, I don't need you to come again, or I don't want to die now because, like, I've got a few things I'd quite like to do. I've got a holiday I'm looking forward to. I've got different things coming up in my life. I really... And, and what's really interesting, that out of the real persecution of the early church... And if you see anybody else in those kind of situations, you have faith. If you listen to any of the lyrics of any of the gospel music that was written, originally sung by black slaves, if you hear stories of the persecuted church, if you hear stories of Christians living in genuine poverty and war-torn countries, these Christians will tell you the hope of the resurrection is absolutely key to their faith as they live through terrible circumstances, that this life is not the end. But I also believe that if we look a little bit deeper amongst what is the relative comfort of the West, on the surface we might appear okay. But we do have our own things going on for us. We have a mental health crisis which is mostly hidden but has been made considerably worse by COVID. We find that even just day to day, many of us hold things really tightly. We might live in an anxiety about the future. We fear all sorts of things that we can't really face and we distract ourselves as we looked at in the War of Desires series by throwing ourselves into other things, into our career, into our relationships, into our children, into sport, into, or we numb the feelings by binge eating, watching Netflix constantly food, porn, you name it, it's alcohol. There's different ways that we can numb dealing with the stuff that we sometimes feel in our lives. And I've noticed it even just recently in conversations that I've had with friends uh, and that people who are really worried about losing their parents or their partner or their children. Very common for people if you get into that kind of end of the conversation with people, if you've had a deep one about fearing not only our own depth but also our death of our loved ones. And this became a reality for me when I lost my younger brother Caleb in a car crash just before he turned 18. There was considerable pain, has been significant, really difficult impact throughout my family. And I had my own like really, really difficult times through that. And in particular, a moment of really doubting my faith. But I know I will see Caleb, as well as my older, um, other members of the family who've died at older age. When I die, or when Jesus comes again, whichever is sooner, at the resurrection of the dead. This statement of faith is for us. Belief in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting takes the sting out of living life and loving wholeheartedly. Because this life on earth isn't the end. Even the tough things in life don't need to be feared in the same way. 
Because we look forward to a day when God promises that everything painful, unjust, evil in this world will be righted. That's what these lines speak of. That's the future reality of the kingdom of God. That we might see glimpses in everything beautiful, everything right, and we're celebrating in the world today, we see those glimpses without the inevitable painful moments that always come alongside those things, if we're honest. That's when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. And as a resurrection people, we can experience God's abundant life now, peace, hope, freedom, and even more fully in the life to come. So when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We are declaring that our faith means we are a community of grace and we are learning to be a community of grace. And we are also a resurrection people that can know God's abundant life now and even more fully in the life to come. Can I encourage you to stand if you feel comfortable? I want to just give us a bit of space now um, to just... um, Just let the Holy Spirit, I suppose, I feel like the Holy Spirit's been dropping different things into each of us. It definitely has for me as I've been looking at this this week. And I just want to give us space to process that a little bit now with him. Um, And as I was praying about this this week, I feel that there there might be different groups of people. I feel there was also things in the words that came earlier as well. But um, I feel there might be a few of us where something we've done or something we're doing habitually but secretly live in fear that if anybody knew what we were up to, they would be appalled. And I have definitely been through those patches in my life. And I just want to say, Jesus already sees, he already knows, and he already loves you absolutely regardless, like the father with the prodigal son. And he just longs for you just to turn and ask for his help and receive forgiveness afresh today. I also feel there's some of us here um, also where the Holy Spirit has been saying to you there, there's that person in your life that you need to forgive. I feel there might even be one person for whom the pain is so real, it's almost like it's making them feel sick, it's eating them up. And I just want to say this is a moment where we can um, recommit again or just give to Jesus those people we need to forgive. It is a journey, but it's definitely one that when we hear this kind of teaching, we need to respond to that. I also wonder if there's any of us that are living with that, that, that kind of um, thing as I was articulating around struggling with anxiety, living in fear, holding tightly to something of this world, afraid when it might break or fail or die. And we need to live as a resurrection people who can let go of those things and give them to Jesus. So I wanted just to do um, just to do two things if you would like to. There's no judgment. Everyone, maybe everyone close their eyes. But if you would like to, and we do think, just, just putting out our hands, one would be if we want to give, put out our left hand, and in that we give to God the pain, the struggle, the burden, the person that we're choosing um, to forgive in this moment. We might just want to leave out our left hand and give that with God right now. And just in your hearts, just pray that prayer of giving that thing over to him. really encourage you to to put out your other hand your right hand and just 
receive from God in this situation? As Matt was saying earlier, um, it might just be a word, it might be a picture, it might be a sense of peace. But there is a moment to receive when we've let go to receive whatever God has for us in this, this space and this time now. We have a little bit of time. Um, the band are going to play. Um, feel free to sing along or to continue to receive. Feel free to kneel, to sit, to have a cry, to ask someone next to you to pray for you. In particular, I really want to encourage you. This is the space for this. That if you would like someone to stand alongside you to pray in what God is already doing. It's not a heavy thing. It's not a complicated thing. It's just sometimes there is um, power in having someone stand alongside you and pray in that thing that you might want to give over or receive. And it's, so it's a moment not when we're just taking things in, in our head, but we're actually we're doing business with God in our hearts. That each of us can walk out knowing Jesus a little bit more, being a little bit freer, and being who he calls us to be this week. I really want to encourage you to take the opportunity. If any of those words, anything we've spoken over, uh, means something to you today and you'd like prayer, do come up now. And just take this moment to do um, business with God. Play.